With the congregation, I ask you to please turn now your very prayerful attention to that portion of God's holy word that I read to you there in the New Testament, that portion of God's word there in Philippians and chapter 1. On the last day of this year, on this momentous occasion, this is the 31st of December 2023, we come aside from our regular week-by-week ministry going through the book of Second Kings to come and to consider this momentous time. It is the Lord's Day, but it is the last day of the year. And we're reminded as we've been singing and meditating in our hearts that time is so swift, isn't it? Time is so quick. I was preaching in the open air, that verse from James chapter 4, how James by the Spirit reminds us that our life is but a vapor. We're here today, we're gone tomorrow. Now you and I, we might reflect upon the last year, and as we do so, I'm sure if we're honest with our hearts, as we conclude the year, we have many regrets. We have many things that we can say the year has been overshadowed by our failures. We may even look back with much sadness. There may be regrets. I'm sure there are many, if we're honest with ourselves. As we look at our own lives with Judgment Day honesty, there are many imperfections in us. We don't have to look far, do we? We look at every day of our life. Stamped over every day is that word sin, sin, and how we've had to confess our sin. Now, I don't mean for this to be a sermon that will drive you to melancholy or to madness or to despair. I do want to encourage you in the Word of God, as I need to encourage myself from the Word of God this morning. The God is very gracious to sinners. He is gracious to his people. So unworthy are we. He is so worthy, but we are so unworthy of him. And I want to point to a verse this morning that I hope will serve as an encouragement to you, but also that will perhaps cause some here to question whether this is true of you, whether you can lay claim to this verse or not. And if not... I urge you, as the scripture says, to seek the Lord while he may be found, to turn to him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his deeds, and the Lord will have mercy upon him. And of course, it's always the Lord that causes a man to truly be downcast upon himself and to see that in himself there is nothing. And that's the best place to be, my friend. To see that in you dwelleth no good thing. The verse I want us to look at this morning is the verse 6 of Philippians chapter 1. Where the Apostle Paul says, being confident of this very thing. That he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. This is a marvelous verse. As I and you and I reflect upon what I've just said, as we look back over this last year, 
The year, we could say, is overshadowed by many of our failures. Our minds can be filled with much sadness and many regrets. We might tend to cry out as Paul did in Romans chapter 7, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Many of us have had to cry that. O Lord, I am a wretched man, I am a wretched woman. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? Well, God is very different to us. Even as we look past over this year, there are many things that we have started to do that we haven't finished. We could say many projects, even good projects, and uh, proposals that we've had and plans that we've had, we haven't done. And even if we've done them, how poorly we've done them. But not so with God. That's never so with God. We read, being confident of this very thing, says the Apostle, by the Spirit. He that which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. My friends, this is a, a tremendous text for us this morning. But we need to examine whether the Lord has begun a good work in us. This verse applies Notice as the epistle begins, Paul is writing to Christians. He's writing to this church at Philippi. Those who were born, again, those who were born by the Spirit of God, who have been quickened by God, those who have been brought to repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that's true, there will be an ongoing repentance toward God and an ongoing faith in the Lord Jesus. Every day we have to repent. Every day we have to look to the Lord, wherein is our righteousness. But he has promised to complete that work. And Paul says here by the Spirit that he is confident of this very thing, that he that has begun a good work in you, child of God, will see it to completion, even to the day of Jesus Christ that is beyond the grave. You think about it. What is the day of Jesus Christ? He begins a good work in you now. He, he saves you. He quickens you. He lives in you by his Spirit. And then one day he will raise that mortal body of yours and mine to life immortality. Paul says, this corruptible shall put on incorruption. And body and soul shall forever be with the Lord. What did the Lord Jesus say in John chapter 5, verse 28? He said, Marvel not, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice, that's his voice, and shall come forth. We will come forth. Of course, some to the resurrection of life, and some to the resurrection of damnation. It's going to be a general resurrection on the same day. And every eye will see him. And then even then, he will do a, he will perfect that. The perfected soul and the glorious heavenly body shall be reunited forever. But these words I say this morning as we look at them, being very confident of this very thing. 
He that which hath begun a good work, and you will perform it to the day, until the day of Jesus Christ. These words ought to cause us to ask, am I a Christian? Has he begun a good work in me? Now, the first thing we need to say whenever we come to an epistle, we're not simply reading Paul's words here. These are words given to the Apostle Paul by the Holy Spirit. And uh, they come with authority. We're told, aren't we, in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be truly furnished and perfect unto all good works. Now, here is proof. Let me show you that this is the Word of God. There are many proofs we can see, but proof that this is not from Paul. While Paul here is the penman, is being moved, as Peter says, by the Holy Spirit. God gave his word to holy men to write. And uh, when Peter says, uh, it speaks about Paul writing hard things, he includes what Paul says in the Scriptures. And if you notice in verse 2, he says, this is interesting, and none of us would write like this, by the way. None of us would ever dare to write like this, because what you notice in verse 2, let me just read from verse 1. Paul and Tim Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, and again, the word bishop is simply the word episcopos, it's another word used to describe a pastor, or an elder, or an overseer. The three words used to describe that office, Pyman, uh, Episcopus, and uh, Presbyterian. Now he says in verse 2, notice this is very striking, and what you find is in nearly all of the epistles, you have this greeting from the Father and the Son. Grace be unto you and peace. Now notice what he says. From God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now if you wrote to me or I wrote to you, we'd never write that. Would we? <laughs> we'd never write that. But here, this is proof, this is ample proof that this is the inspired word of God. The Spirit of God is giving the word here to Paul to write. And he is saying the Father and the Son greet God's people. How? By the Spirit. This is tremendous. And I encourage you to go through all the epistles and you'll see that this little phrase, this greeting from the Father and the Son, is almost always there. It's tremendous. And these are proofs that these are the words of the Spirit. Now, I want you to notice, not only is this the Word of God, but God, He works through real men. Doesn't He? As Paul is writing here, He is being led by the Spirit and what is Paul saying? Well, the time, we need to go a 
upon the scene. The time now is somewhere around 62 AD, and Paul is suffering. If you, if you just turn to the last chapter, and you notice in the postscript, it tells us where Paul is writing from. It says to the Philippians, written from Rome by Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus would be the courier, the man that is going to take the letter to the Philippian church. And Paul, we know from chapter 1, is locked up, he's, he's in prison, and uh, even at the end of this chapter, you notice that even Caesar's household, many of them, are, are saved. And this is tremendous, isn't it? Look at verse 22 of chapter 4. All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. What an encouragement to know that even Caesar's household, many of them are, are saved. The Spirit of God has birthed them to a living hope. My friends, the Word of God is not bound, neither is His Spirit. And these people are quickened. And while Paul is bound up in the chains, the gospel is not bound, and the Spirit of God is not bound, but the salvation that God so gives has been wrought in the hearts of many people here in Rome. Now, this doesn't make it easy for Paul, because when you think of it, Caesar's not a saved man. Nero will not be a saved man. And that makes him all the more hostile to Paul, the apostle, and to the others. And furthermore, that Paul had those that had abandoned him in the ministry. We think of Simon the Tanner. We think of Demas, who loved this present world. And all of these things are bearing upon the apostle's mind. If you just turn there to Second uh, Timothy chapter 4, Paul is writing to Timothy at the same time, shortly after, while he's in Rome in prison, awaiting his execution. And by the way, Paul knows he's going to meet his end very soon. In Acts chapter 21, he was told by Agabus, the prophet, that he was going to be taken away and bound and be put to death. Here in 2 Timothy 4, 6, we read, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all of them that love is appearing. And then he says this, do thy diligence, speaking here to Timothy, to come shortly unto me. For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. And so on. You can see his, this no doubt would have been a great disappointment to the Apostle Paul. And so he's got these men who he thought perhaps were faithful. He never had the gift of omniscience. He didn't know. He didn't know others. He never would have chosen Demas. But of course, there are going to be disappointments. And there are, as I said, Simon, and there are others that have proven to be false teachers. And he knows he's going to meet his end. As I said in Acts 21, Agabus, the prophet, was there and told him that he'd be bound and be taken away. And 
where is Paul now? Look at him. He's not wallowing in self-pity in the prison. He's seeking to help and encourage Christians while he is suffering in chains for the sake of the gospel. He's not backslidden. He's not slumped into a state of despondency and despair. Well, the Lord has kept him. And the Lord keeps all of his people. We see him praying. and How he said he's prayed earnestly for them. Praying that the Lord will continue to work in their lives. Praying that they may be of one mind. Particularly two women in this epistle. That they may be of one mind. And they might live a life of grace. And they might lose their lives for the sake of Christ. We think of, remember, young Jim Elliot, one of the missionaries sent out to South America, a young, promising young man from Plymouth Brethren background, a faithful man. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep. You can't keep your life. And then he said, to gain what he cannot lose. What can you, not you lose? You can't lose God if you are the Lord's. You are his portion, and his portion forever. And if he has saved you, he will finish the work that he has begun in you. And Paul knew this in his own heart. He knew this concerning himself. What a great sinner Paul was. He said he was the chief of sinners, for he even persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. David a great sinner too. Even being a saved man, he sinned. And yet the Lord will not forsake his own. David, having committed murder and adultery, the Lord would not forsake him. If any man would be brought to despair, would it not be David? Surely it would be. But the Lord will not forsake. Thou hast made an everlasting covenant with me, ordered in all things, and sure, said David, this is all my salvation and all my hope. Well, my friends, this is where I want us to look this morning. Look at verse 6, being confident of this very thing, he says, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. As I said, God is not like man. Often we don't finish things or we finish with people. I heard somebody say recently, I'm finished with him. He wasn't a Christian, by the way. But we hear people say that. I'm finished with him, finished with her. But God is never finished with his people. Why? Because Jesus Christ cried on the cross, it is finished. He suffered for their sins. He bore all of their iniquities. And maybe you're downcast. Maybe you're despairing today. But here's a word for you. But you must properly examine your heart, whether this verse applies to you. The first thing I would say, think of Solomon's words there in Ecclesiastes 3. Do you remember what Solomon said? He speaks in that whole chapter of there's a time to be born, there's a time to die, and so on. And then Solomon gets to that part in verse 14 where he says, I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. What God does, he does for eternity. Forever, in God's eyes, is not just, it's not just here in this world, it, but it's for eternity. 
He says, I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. And God doeth it, that men should fear before him. The fact that you fear God is the work of God's grace in your heart, my friend. And that's such an encouragement to us here today, if we truly fear God. To fear God is to know him, and to know him is to love him, and to love him is to obey him. When God begins something, he completes it. And sometimes it doesn't look that way. As you and I look over this last year, we're caused to despond and to despair in ourselves, aren't we? We say, oh, Lord, I resolved to do this. I resolved to do that. And even when I went to go and do them, I look at my life now. What a mess I'd made. But God is at work. And I want you to notice the first thing, the first observation this morning, salvation is a work of God in the soul of a person that has no beginnings with man's effort or will. Notice the text. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you, you didn't begin it. God began it. And that gives you all the more confidence, my friends. How a man should despair if he began this work. But God began it when there was no life in you. When there was no light in you, when there was no knowledge of Christ, he shed the light of the knowledge of the glory of his Son into your heart. You and me, a wretched sinner. It is God that illuminated himself to you and brought you to a knowledge of his Son. He's speaking here to Christians. He says to these Christians, he which hath begun done a good work in you. Now again, man's salvation is not initiated by man. It's initiated by God. And from beginning to end, salvation is of the Lord. Did he not say to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. A man has to be born by the Spirit, born from above. And when he is, by the grace of God, God gives that man faith and he gives him repentance. We're told in John chapter 1 verse 12, but as many as received him, that is Christ, who came into the world, and we're told in the previous verses that the world knew him not. Though he was in the world, the world knew him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born, antecedent. That goes before, the being born again goes before receiving him. Very important to study that verse. You only believe because you're born again. 1 John 5, 1, whosoever believeth, that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God. And that believeth, by the way, is ongoing. And it's believing on him, not merely in him, 
but on him, resting on him. Well, what happens when God begins this good work? And how does he complete it? Well, various ways. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you. It's a good work. And when God says something is good, it's good. We are told, aren't we, there in Genesis chapter 1, that everything God made was good. Not our standard of good, but God's standard, which is far above our standard, isn't it? Perfect. It is a perfect work. Now, it may not look perfect, but you will see why. And sometimes it, as we know, as we look at our lives, we think, well, what is God doing? And we might be brought to despair. We think, Lord, I'm so long in making improvement in my life as a Christian. I'm so ill-advanced in my spiritual years. Lord, I feel a wretch. Let's look at a first few things, how God begins this work. Well, as I said, it's the new birth. But it, it's seen by, and maybe you're examining your heart this morning, am I born again? And I want us to follow all the way through. I'm going to go through some various points to examine whether we are born again. First of all, is there a loathing of self? Is there an awakening to sin in the heart? And an ongoing loathing of self. I mean, the ongoing loathing of self is true because the more you grow in grace, here's the irony, the more sin you see inside yourself. Paul could say, there is a seasoned saint in Romans 7, a wretched man that I am. He said, I know in me, verse 18 of Romans 7, dwelleth no good thing, no good thing. The only good that we know is of God. So there, there is that, first of all, there is to know this good work and to know that it's in us. There's a loathing of self and there's an inward looking. We think of how the Lord Jesus begins that Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek. They're inward looking. Blessed are them that mourn. They mourn their sin. They mourn the world. They mourn everything. But they, they particularly mourn themselves. And if you're anything like me, we can't look at ourselves very often. We find it hard. We see what wretches we are. We feel our sin. Well, these are the Lord's people. They see no good thing in them. And then there's an increasing lack of trust in self. I mean, even as you go on, you, you learn as a Christian to trust less in yourself. Less in self. You then begin to be more dependent upon his word. That's true of the Christian Job could say, I'm vile. Job could say, I abhor myself. Job 42.5. It's right at the end of all of Job's trials. Note those words. Dear seasoned Job said, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear. 
Now, Job, we, we know at the beginning of Job, there was none like Job. You get to the end of his trial. He said, I have heard thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee, wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Yeah, but Job, didn't you know God before? Yes, he did. But now he sees God much more clearly at the end of his trial. And I abhor myself. And this is true of every Christian. They will abhor themselves more as time goes on. And somebody might say, well, is that really a good work then? Is it wonderful to be a Christian? Well, at least you're not blind. You were blind before. You were blind to yourself. But now you're not blind. Thirdly, there's a deep sense that there is no righteousness in us. Nothing. Any good is because of him. You see, as you go on as a Christian, you begin to see and you start to examine your motives for even doing good. And you find that so often that there's sin right there, as Paul says. Even when you go to do good. That's what he says in Romans 7. You, you examine your motives and you realize it was so much of what you did was for your own glory and not God's glory. And how selfish we are. It's said in Proverbs 21.4, Solomon says, And high look, and a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked is sin. The plowing of the wicked is sin. The wicked, the lost, he does all of his plowing for himself and his family, but not to the glory of God. And, and it's true even sometimes in a believer's life. Not everything he does is for the glory of God. And it's to our weeping, isn't it? It's to our sadness. We have to say, Lord, I didn't do it for thy glory. I did it for my own glory. Lord, have mercy upon me. Forgive me. Cleanse me. Wash me. It's a good work that he's done in you to bring you to see this he's bringing us all to see it my if God had exposed all of our sins to us the day we were saved I think we'd be completely consumed and overwhelmed with our sinfulness somebody says this is a good work yes this is Christianity my friend this is real Christianity this is what it is to be a Christian, to be brought low. But then fourthly, I said before you this, the Spirit of God gives the sinner the amazing knowledge and the sight of the sinless Savior. And we see there was one who delighted in the law of God purely for the glory of God. 
That's what he delighted in. For the glory of God. Not to glorify himself. He said, Father, I have glorified thy name. And I have revealed thy name. I've shown the very character of God. The character a man's name. When we think of the names of God, they reveal himself. And he could say in that John passage in his high priestly prayer in John 17, Father, I have revealed thy name to those whom thou hast given me. How did he reveal the name of the Father? He showed exactly what God is like by his life. He left his glory, the glory and the worship of angels to come down and as it were for his glory to be veiled for a little while, to glorify God, the Father, and to give his life as a ransom for many. To live a life of obscurity for 30 years as the carpenter's son. And then finally in those last three years, teaches obdurate disciples how to live, how to worship, how to preach. Poor they were, always saying, who's going to be the first? Who's going to be the first? Which of us can sit on your left hand? Which can sit on the right hand? And it wasn't just James and John. They were all arguing amongst themselves. And how often is that true of us? That we see him. His face, as we read, as flint. Determined to go and to suffer for their sin at Calvary. They were afraid at his look. Because he was so determined to suffer and die for their sin. And you see, this is what God gives us. He brings us to a knowledge of his son. And to bring us to see that he is our substitute for sin. Now here is where the rubber hits the road. And many people just stop here. This is the acid test. You see, because many people understand the gospel. Many people are convicted of sin, but that's not conversion. Hear what I'm saying? Conviction is not conversion. Being pricked in your conscience is not conversion. Here is the acid test. Is there an effort? Is there an exertion within your soul to turn away from sin? Because that is proof that the Spirit of God is there. Where the Spirit of God is not there, there is no, there's merely an outcry against sin. Read John Bunyan, talkative. He always has an outcry against sin. But there's no mourning after it. And there's no exertion in his soul to mortify the deeds of the body, to put to death sin. That's proof of the life. I want you to show you something. Romans 7. If you just turn there to Romans 7, Paul uses the analogy of marriage. 
And he speaks on this wise, he says, we were married before, we were married to the law. What does he mean? Well, in Adam, we were under, as it were, a covenant of works. And a marriage has a covenant, doesn't it? Husband and wife, they covenanted together, they've sworn oath. And uh, by nature, we're under a covenant of works. We're married to the law. And the man who does not, as it were, God has joined us to his law. And a man that does not obey the law, cursed is that man. But then we notice these wonderful words. Romans 7, 4, Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead. What is he saying? He said, when Christ went to the cross, he died for his people. And you died in Christ. He was there as your federal head as a Christian. There upon the cross, he says, you are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that you should be married to another. Who is the other? Christ. Now notice that you should bring forth fruit unto God. That's the whole reason why he has saved a soul. That you be married to Christ. Every child of God is a bride of Christ. Part of that bride. And the proof is he has put his spirit in the Christian. Read Romans 8 verse 9. He that hath not the spirit of Christ is none of his. But if they have the spirit of Christ, they put to death the deeds of the body so that they bear fruit unto God. Now notice, for when we were in the flesh, verse 5, the motions of sins, that's before God quickened us, we were in the flesh, the motions of sins, whereby the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death, but now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein, we were held that we should serve in newness of spirit and not oldness of the letter. In other words, it's not a legalistic service to God. But now you serve in newness of spirit. You're married to another. He died for you that he might live in you, that you might live to him, and that you might loathe sin. Do you loathe sin? It's a good question. Ultimately, the work that he does, where Paul says here, he that has begun a good work in you will perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, the work that God has done and is doing in you is now to conform you to the image of his Son. We have it in Romans uh, chapter 8, where Paul tells us, and we know that God works all things together for good to them that love him to them that are called according to his purpose. And then Paul says, for. Why? Well, he says that we might be conformed to the image of his son. That's the good work. How does he do it? Various ways, my friend. He that hath begun a good work in you will see it to completion unto the day of Jesus Christ. He does it by the means of grace. What are the means of grace? 
the word. You come hear the word. You see, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. And they hunger for the word. They want to hear more. But they don't just want to hear. Every time they come under it, they come convicted. And convinced that they are not what they ought to be. But pray that they will be. This is the good work. The hearing of the word. Prayer is another means. The Christian, he prays. God, create in me a new heart. Every day, wash me. Renew in me a right spirit, O Lord. I'm weak. Something else, the Christian believes in a sovereign God. Knowing that every trial we go through has been ordained by Almighty God for our sanctification. Look at what even Paul says here in, in verse 12 of chapter 1. But you would that I should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. So he believes there, first of all, in the sovereignty of God concerning the gospel going out. And then you come down to verse 18. And he says, What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, he's been speaking about people who preach the gospel for varying motives. He says, it doesn't matter. He says, I rejoice, for I know that this, and Paul is suffering even because he has had betrayers that have not been faithful to him. He says, I know this shall turn to my salvation. Even him being put in prison will work for his own good. You see, the Christian is not somehow in his own little world. God is working in that man and through that man for that man's good and for the cause of others. That's a precious thought, isn't it? You know, you, you and I as Christians, we don't live some kind of isolationist life. But God is ordering and even working in your trial for your good and for the good of others. And that's another thing, you see. The Christian believes in an absolute sovereign God. And that is how God will complete what he has done in us and will see it to completion even until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, somebody might say, well, hold on a minute. Why doesn't God just perfect us all instantaneously? Now, that'd be a good question, and many people have asked that. Why does God put us all through all the trials? Well, various reasons. God, let me say first of all, has decreed how we shall be sanctified. And we don't argue with that. If we were sanctified, if we were made perfect here on earth, we, first of all, let me put it this way, we would never be long-suffering toward other Christians, would we? Because 
we often stumble. We often fall. And it makes us very tender toward other people, doesn't it? But also, the fact that we are not instantaneously sanctified or perfected, it really makes us value Christ. And it shows us how really wicked we are. How sinful we are. And it humbles us. Doesn't sin humble you? I mean, some people, sin just seems to make them more proud. They can't be saved. But sin humbles us. And you see, God allowing sin to remain, it reminds us of our constant need of Christ. constant need of his mercy to sustain us every day, that we depend upon him, that we depend upon his word. And we're so thankful. John tells us in John 1.16, and of his fullness have we all received grace for grace. How we need more grace. We have received grace, pardoning grace, forgiving grace, but oh, how we need grace for every day, for every situation, for every trial. But something else. God allowing sin to remain in us will make us long more for heaven. Will it not? It'll make heaven sweeter. I mean, the year perhaps has been very bitter. And you look over your life, as I look over mine. It's a bittersweet, isn't it? The Lord has carried us. But how we long for that day when we'll never sin against him ever again. How we long for that. And if God took away all of our sin, it would make this world too comfortable for us. And we want to stay here forever. But friends, it is a wicked world. And it is going to end. I ask you, has God begun a good work in you? The good work is to see there's nothing good in you or me. But there's everything good in him. And to always trust his word. To trust providence. To trust the means of grace. His word. Paul says, this is the will of God, even your sanctification. It is God's will. But he has determined the means. The means is not an instantaneous flash. The quick, easy shortcut. But the mortifying of sin. Paul says, if you, if ye by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body, ye shall live. What did Paul say? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. All things. The Lord Jesus said, without me you can do nothing. Nothing. We need him. We need his daily grace. Look at verse 12 of chapter 2. Wherefore, my beloved, Philippians 2 verse 12. 
as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Notice, don't stop there. For it is God which worketh in you. He's in you. He's working in you. To do what? To both will and to do of his good pleasure. You see that? You work it out because it's in you. It's not just feeling sin. But it is. You see, when God saves us, let me just put it this way. He doesn't violate our will, but he changes our will. He makes us willing in the day of his power. Psalm 110. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. You see, it's to know the power of God in your life is such a blessing. But how low we can become when we grieve the Spirit. I'm sure we've all been there. And we don't feel power. But what a blessing it is to know the power. The power will only come and be pleased to manifest itself when there is repentance toward God. And there is faith in Jesus Christ. He may allow a sinner to wander, but only so far. Remember what the Lord Jesus said. How, how does he begin? How does he finish this work? How does he complete it? Well, actually, he prays for the sinner. Think of what the Lord Jesus said to Peter. Peter! Satan has desired to sift thee as wheat, but Peter, I have prayed for thee. Peter was boasting, I will not deny thee, Lord. All men may, but not I. But you see, the Lord will allow his sheep to wander, but only so far, so that they feel their weakness. John Kent in his hymn said, Glory to God, they ne'er shall rove beyond the limits of his love, fenced with Jehovah's shells and wills, firm as the everlasting hills. The appointed time rolls on apace, not to propose, but call by grace, to change the heart, renew the will, and turn the feet to Zion's hill. The Lord Jesus said, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me. Hear those words. They ought to be a comfort to the Christian. Jesus Christ does not pray for those who are not his. He said it, John 17, 9. I pray not for them. I pray not for the world but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. And you see, you may wonder, but he will allow you to fall, to feel your weakness, to depend upon him, and he will complete the work in you.
to his day. You go to the grave, he's not forgotten about your body. That body will rise. You die, as a child of God, your spirit goes to be with God, who gave it. But when you die, Paul could say, absent from the body, present with the Lord. He overcomes your will, and he will. Sometimes, Christians, sadly, we've all had to learn this lesson. You go your own silly way, and you hurt yourself. You hurt yourself. You fall. But he has to let you fall. But he'll bring you back. But here's the thing. The careless sinner is not a Christian. The careless sinner who does not heed the warnings of God's word is not a Christian. If you can sin and think you can sin with impunity, you're not a Christian. Does sin grieve you, my friend? To the point where you resolve to pray to God, forgive me, O Lord, I hate this vile mess of sin. And you even are haunted by sins of the past. And you keep confessing them. God will forgive you. But that's not the careless sinner. That's not the unsaved man. No good work has begun in that soul. And I would urge you, therefore, if such is the state of your soul, you keep coming, you hear the word of God. God's word does command all men everywhere to repent. Chiefly because you have sinned against God. Not repentance because you want salvation, but repentance because you have sinned against God. And that should cut your heart. That you have sinned against one that has kept you and not pulled the carpet underneath your feet and let you slip into a lost eternity, which he could do at any moment. You repent firstly because you have sinned. Not simply because you want a ticket to heaven. But because sin is horrible. You see, let me close with this. When you sin, what you're saying is, I don't care what God says. I don't care that he has one day that he calls the Lord's day. And I can do with it. Well, I want. That's high-handed, open sin. And such, my friend, is not the spirit of a child of God. It's not. He who knows to do good and does not do it, it is sin. There are so many areas in this new year we need to examine. I need to examine my life. What you allow to go through your eyes. If you have a television, I really don't know anymore 
how a Christian in good, honest, sincere conscience can pay well over, I don't know what the fee is now, to the BBC who will put pornography on the television. And you may not watch that program, but you're paying money to the BBC to fund the production of such programs. How can you do that with a good conscience? There's so many other things you can watch. You don't need a television. There are plenty of things you can watch on other mediums, other outlets. How can you do that? How can you watch a film where you're watching two persons kissing who aren't married? Who aren't married? And you are watching that. That's sin, isn't it? You see, we need to stop and think where we're living, where we're going, whose we are. If we're the Lord's people, we should be different. You may despair. But let me say this, he that has begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Thank God he received sinners. But there is a work to be done, isn't there? In my heart, in your heart, we should be the Lord's people. In everything that we say or do, let me ask you something. You have hobbies, you have interests, whatever it is. Can you, for a millisecond, whatever you're doing in, in every area of your life, whatever you're going to do in the next hour, in the next week, can you picture the Lord Jesus doing what you do? That's a good question to ask, isn't it? I know it's an old question. What would Jesus do? But would he do it? If he wouldn't do it, dare you do it, my friend. Dare you do it. If his spirit is in you, dare you do it. Dare you grieve his spirit. Dare you wander far and bring trouble to your soul. May God be with us. May God strengthen us and give us grace for the coming year, may God forgive us of our poor lives as we ask in his Son's name. Amen.